so grateful for Annette and all that she has done with VBS. Uh, you've seen some of that, uh, but what you've seen is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of her efforts and her work. So just grateful to the Lord for her and uh, the Morris family. Well, I would invite you to take your Bibles with me and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, if you have one of those red Bibles, it's on page 157 of the New Testament, which is toward the back of the Bible. The theme of Philippians, as we've seen, is rejoice. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 8, where Paul really sets the tone of the letter by striking notes of uh, encouragement to this Philippian church. Specifically, he reminds them of the unity that they have in Christ. He tells them of the gratitude that is in his own heart toward them as a church, and he exhibits the confidence that he has that God is at work and will continue his work in them. And then he also reflects on the affection that he has for this church. He really lays bare his heart before the church, which he loves, and conveys to them what fills his heart when he thinks about them. In fact, in verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you in every prayer for you all. But it's not until verse 9 that we learn about what exactly does Paul pray for this church. And that prayer in verses 9 through 11 is the basis for the message today entitled, All You Need Is Love. So if you're there, Philippians 1, follow along as I read verses 1 through 11, and then pay particular attention when we get to verse 9. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound more, still more, and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Love, 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 love. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. There's nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Nothing you can say, but you can learn how to play the game. It's easy. 
Nothing you can make that can't be made. Nothing you can save that can't be saved. Nothing you can do, but you can learn how to be you in time. It's easy. All you need is love. Those rich and inspired lyrics. (laughs) I thought you might laugh at that. Were written in 1967 during the summer of love by John Lennon. In fact, those are the opening words of the well-known song, All You Need Is Love, sung by the Beatles. In fact, believe it or not, in the providence of God, yesterday, June 25th, was the 55th anniversary of the debut of that song on the television broadcast, Our World, which happened to be the first global television link in history. That's right, kids. 55 years ago was the first time the whole world could watch the same thing at the same time. And this song is one of the things that those privileged to have a TV watched. Because of the global audience, the song was selected for its simplicity using basic English that could be understood by people around the world. In fact, of the 383 songs, uh, excuse me, words in that song, 66 of those 383 is the word love. 42 of the 59 lines of lyric, which is over 70%, are either all you need is love or love is all you need. (laughs) Say what you want about the song. It has its fans and its critics. But the song has had lasting influence. If you just search for that phrase on the internet, do a Google search, click on shopping, you can find that phrase printed on anything. Signs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, mugs, calendars, quilts, water bottles. You can see that sign on billboards, even on tattoos. Of course, these days that sign or those words are represented uh, with rainbow colors. But back in the day, it became the theme song of a subculture in society. Among other critiques of that song, perhaps the most potent is that the idea that love is all you need is naive. As important as love is, the world is far too complex to boil it all down to the need for love. Given that generation's definition of love, that critique is undeniable. Their definition of love was a poisonous mixture of drug-induced apathy and live and let live mentality and freedom from moral restraints. And anybody who drank from that cup only found destruction in their lives. But could it be that John Lennon was onto something? In the Gospel of John, not Lennon, in chapter 11, verse 49, we read about Caiaphas, the high priest. In that moment, Jesus was having increasing influence in Israel and the the religious leaders got together and were arguing about the fact that they were all being ineffective in stamping out this new movement. And Caiaphas, as the high priest, stands up and says these words. You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and and not, not that the whole nation perish. And then the Apostle John comments, 
Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So in his wickedness, Caiaphas uttered words of murder. But in God's wisdom, he spoke through Caiaphas to proclaim salvation to the world through the death of Christ. And so I would submit to you that in saying all you need is love, John Lennon spoke what he did not understand. He taught the very same principle that Jesus taught. In Matthew 22, the group of Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day, came to Jesus to try to trap him. As they were experts in the law of Moses, they were trying to get him to say something that they could use against him in the court of law. And so they asked this question, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. And the, this is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. If you want to follow the rules and the commandments and the standards of God's law, Jesus says, all you need is love. Not the Beatles' definition of love, but God's definition of love. If you want to know how to live in this world as a creature who has been made by God and to live according to the design that God had, had orchestrated in your life, Jesus says, all you need is love. Again, not the Beatles' definition of love, but God's definition of love. Well, what is God's definition? We find one definition in 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. From that and other passages, we could rightly understand love this way. Let me give you this definition, which I'll repeat uh, multiple times here over the next few minutes. Love is the determination to use your resources, time, and energy for the good of others regardless of whether they deserve it. Love is the determination to use your resources, time, and energy for the good of others, regardless of whether they deserve it. God used his resources by sending his most prized possession, his one and only son. Jesus devoted his whole life in obedience to God to the service of others. And then he gave up his life as a sacrifice to pay the, the debt penalty of sinners so that they might be saved. God used his resources. God used his time by sending his son into time, born of a woman, and he lived on this earth for over 30 years. God's supreme expression of love by our accounting of time was at least a 30-year effort. But from another perspective, God has been loving us for thousands of years. He could have zapped the material world out of existence when Adam and Eve sinned and brought the curse of sin into the world, but he didn't. For thousands upon thousands of years, he's been patiently loving his creation. So God uses 
resources and he used his time. He also used his energy. The entire plan of redemption was made before time began. And then from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Matthew, God has worked all things for the purpose of moving history forward to that singular point where Jesus would hang on a cross and purchase for himself a people for his own possession. Now, for his part, Jesus didn't uh, lay around lazily waiting until some alarm went off telling him, hey, now it's time to get up on that cross. No, he worked himself to exhaustion, serving, ministering, loving, day after day after day. God used his resources, his time, and his energy for the good of others. But remember the last part of that definition, whether or not they deserve it. God used his resources, time, and energy for the good of not the lovable, not his friends, not those who are poor, but rather for sinners, those who were hostile to him, those who were his enemies. When John John says in John 11 that, excuse me, 1 John 4.10, that that In love, God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What that means is we were in a position of condemnation and guilt before God. His righteous wrath was hanging over us as we deserve the full extent of the punishment that was due to us because of our sin and rebellion against our Creator. But in love, Jesus came and took that wrath on Himself and satisfied the wrath of God for those who would believe. Propitiation means that the wrath of God is satisfied in Christ, such that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Friend, if you have not called out to God, believing in Jesus Christ, who alone is able to save you from the wrath of God, If you have not given your life over to him and submitted to him as Lord, I would urge you to do that even now in your own heart. Because if you don't, the work of Christ does not apply to you and the wrath of God will not be satisfied and you yourself will bear what is justly coming to you forever. Know that God's desire for you is not your condemnation, but rather your forgiveness and salvation. Isaiah 55, 7 says, Let the wicked man forsake his way. And let the unrighteous man turn from his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will find compassion. And let him return to God and he will abundantly pardon. Turn to God today if you have not yet. It is the love of God exercised in Christ whereby God spent his resources, his time and his energy for the eternal good of his enemies to save them and make them his friends. After defining love in that way in 1 John 4.10, listen to what John says next in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Well, listen to how Paul says it in Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved You and gave himself up for us as a fragrant aroma and an offering to God and a sacrifice. The love of God demonstrated towards his enemies is the way in which God has 
drawn his enemies near, and it is the way in which he calls us to love one another, calls us to love one another. We are to love God, and we are to love others for their good. Loving God for his good means that we are to bring glory to his name. We are to reflect his love back to him and show him that he is the great God that he is. In loving others, our aim is for their good. And primarily that means their ultimate good, which is their progression in likeness to Christ, but also anything that would be beneficial in their life. Just imagine, what would the world be like if we all imitated Jesus Christ and actually lived a life of sacrifice, giving up our rights and our preferences and our desires, not for some concept of peace, which means nothing more than the cessation of hostilities, but with the specific intention of benefiting one another and building each other up. Imagine how that would change the world. I mean, that's the picture of heaven. Everybody loving everybody else. If the great, greatest commandment is that we are to love God and to love others, then it stands to reason that the reason we have problems in society is because we have failed to love God and we have failed to love one another the way that God has loved us. And if that's the central point of failure, then it also stands to reason that the greatest need that we have in times of trouble and difficulty, is to take the love of God by which we, he has reconciled us to himself and extend that love to one another. Now, with that as an introduction, we're ready now to come to our text. What we learn here in Paul's prayer for the Philippians in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1 is that in a world full of trouble, what Christians need is an ever-increasing measure of love. You know, great emphasis has been placed on the prayer that Jesus taught to his disciples. But we can learn a great deal from the prayers of Paul to the churches. And, you know, these prayers are just as inspired as what we would call the Lord's Prayer, what's often called the Disciples' Prayer. Throughout this letter, Paul has a lot to say about how the church should respond to their circumstances. But in this prayer, he teaches us that all of what he says rises out of and grows out of an ever-increasing measure of love among God's people. Now, when he prays that their love would abound still more and more, Paul affirms that there is love in the church. He's not telling them that there is no love. But at the same time, he affirms what is true of every person and of every church, and that is that we need to manifest the love of Christ more and more. Specifically, Paul prays that their love would grow in three different dimensions. He prays that their love would increase in maturity, in discernment, and in sanctification. We must, we can put it this way, we must pursue a maturing love. We must pursue a discerning love, and we must pursue a sanctifying love. And the purpose of growing in a maturing and discerning and sanctifying love is so that God would receive the glory and the praise that's due to his name. Let's begin by looking at the maturing love, that we are to pursue a maturing 
love. This is what Paul prays for the church. Look again at verse 9 where he says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Increasing love is both meaningless and powerless if it's not based on transcendent truth. If our love is shallow and based on temporal things, things like how you feel today, or whether or not your love is reciprocated, our love will ultimately fail. But if love is based on something outside of us, something that transcends us, maybe even something that transforms us, that kind of love will empower us to extend love toward others for their good. We see here that Paul defines the growth of love being the result of a growth in increasing knowledge and discernment. It's like the air that fills a balloon that expands the size of the balloon in the same way as we grow in knowledge and discernment, our love will naturally expand. Now the phrase real knowledge there translates a word that means much more than stockpiling information in your mind. It's the idea of knowledge that has become personal. Right? It's like it's one thing to know that a city exists and that maybe there's some facts about that city that you're aware of, but it's a completely different matter for a city to be your hometown. You may or may not know what Wikipedia says about your city, but what you know about it is far more meaningful. That kind of knowledge that we're called to grow in is personal and intimate involvement with the truth. But notice that in saying this, Paul doesn't specify what area of knowledge we are to grow in. Is this knowledge of the gospel? Is this knowledge about people? Is this knowledge about theology in general? Well, I think by not specifying, Paul implies that we are to grow in the knowledge of the truth from God's perspective. So that's a big category, the knowledge of the truth from God's perspective. We are to to have our minds shaped by God's word. God's way of looking at things should be the lens through which we view the world. Our pursuit of greater knowledge of God's word must have the aim of embracing and imbibing the truth so that it really becomes part of us. It's something that shapes us and changes us. It transforms us, right? We see Paul's pursuit of this kind of knowledge in chapter three. You can flip over there where he says in verse seven, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith and may be found in him, not having, excuse me, and that I may know him, verse 10, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul was interested not just in growing in his factual knowledge about Christ. He was interested in knowing Christ personally, and he wanted that to affect every area of his life. I think one of the things we can say is that in order for increasing knowledge to naturally increase our love, one of the areas we need to understand more and more is God's love for us. You look at almost every command in the New Testament to grow in love. 
or to love one another. And most of them are based on how God has loved us, as we saw in 1 John 4. And so the more we understand God's love for us, the more we'll grow in our love for others. And don't ever think, don't ever think that you have reached the fullest extent of understanding of God's love for you. Because as soon as you have that thought, that's the bell that says you haven't even started learning. Keep growing in your love, in your understanding of God's love for you. Now notice the second phrase Paul says there, not only should we be growing in real knowledge, but we should be growing in all discernment. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament, but it's used a number of times in Proverbs, in the Greek translation of Proverbs, where it's translated knowledge. But remember that in Proverbs, the word knowledge really means true insight, really overlaps with the principle of wisdom. And so uh, discernment is a good translation here in this passage. It's the ability to perceive distinctions, which enables us to love wisely. The word all is not meant to say that we will have all discernment, all the discernment that there is to have, but rather that we would have broad discernment, not just discernment in one particular area, but in a variety of areas. The kind of love that Paul prays for is a love that matures over time as the result of increasing knowledge and discernment. And increasing knowledge and discernment produce a love that transcends circumstances and perceives, excuse me, perseveres through trials. You know, when a single person falls in love with someone, that love may be genuine, but it is based on very limited knowledge and discernment. I mean, love is easy, isn't it? When you're attracted to someone physically, when you enjoy their personality and you find it easy to talk to them into the late hours of the night. You know, it's often said by couples in a premarital counseling room, oh, he makes me laugh. We have so many things in common. We love to be outdoors and active. Well, that's all well and good. But what happens when life stops being funny because it gets hard? Or what happens when something tragic happens and one of you is not able to be active in outdoors anymore? What happens when one of you is trapped in a pattern of sin? What kind of love will sustain a marriage? Well, I'll tell you what kind of love. It's a love that is growing in maturity. Common interests, attractive physique, and even more significant things may get you to the altar, but the covenant of marriage is sustained as a relationship matures over time with increasing knowledge of each other, even as you both change and grow as individuals, as you walk through trials together and depend on the Lord for wisdom and guidance, forgiving each other day after day and all the sins you commit against each other, and and as you learn to love sacrificially and humbly submit. When you get down the road of life and you look back, and see how God has providentially cared for you and provided for you and and led you as you've walked with Him together. You can look at each other eye to eye, perhaps with some flecks of white in the hair or experience lines on the face. You love each other with a deeper love because your knowledge of each other is not superficial. It's deep and it's personal. In the same way, if we are committed to walking with the Lord, 
as we pursue the grace and knowledge, increasing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, our perspective of life and of people will be shaped by the truth of God. And that will naturally produce an increase of God's kind of love in our life. So how does how, how do we grow in knowledge and discernment? How do you pursue that in life? Well, in his wisdom, God has given given us what are often called the disciplines of grace, the disciplines of grace. If the knowledge that we need is outside of us, then that means we need to go after that knowledge, right? We, we do that elsewhere in life. If, you know, we, we go after the news of the world or the latest information about our sports teams, we have ways to do that. And, and many of us have built-in habits of life that enable us to get the information that we need or that we want. The disciplines of grace are the common methods that God has given to us of how to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. It's, it's things like regular Bible reading, cultivating a, a, pr- a life of prayer, participating in corporate worship. In the case of our church, it's participating in things like growing disciples or men's and women's ministries or small groups. That's not to say that you have to do everything that a church provides, but one of the blessings of being part of a larger church that has a lot of ministries is you can decide what would be beneficial to you at this stage in your life and your family. But I want to reiterate that the goal of growing in knowledge is not so that you just know more stuff about the Bible and can answer trivia questions. The goal is not to become a person informed by the Bible. Rather, the goal is to become a person shaped by the Bible. More specifically, the goal of these things is that you begin to look more and more like Jesus, who himself is the love of God on display. And so we must pursue a maturing love. Secondly, we must pursue a discerning love, a discerning love. Look at the first part of verse 10. Paul says, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Just focus on that first half, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. True love, God's kind of love, is not an indiscriminate love. It doesn't love everyone and everything the same. You know, God doesn't love that way. He doesn't love the rocks in the same way that he loves people. He doesn't love unbelievers the same way he loves believers. It is true to say that God loves all humanity, but it's not true to say that God loves all humanity the same. There is a particular love that God has for his people. And in fact, God instituted marriage as a way to communicate to us the unique and special love he has for his marriage. He created marriage so that we would have an understanding of God's relationship to his people. And in marriage, we know that it would be wrong for a husband to have the same love for his co-workers that he has for his wife. It would be destructive to the family for a wife to have the same love for her neighbors or even for her children that she has for her husband. All of that would undermine the very nature of marriage. Love must be discerning. It must make distinctions. And specifically, Paul states here that the result of a love that is maturing in knowledge and discernment would lead to approving the things that are excellent. In other words, knowledge and discernment must be exercised in the choices 
that one makes. When we use the word approve, as the NAS does here, we typically think of a decision that we make to approve or disapprove something. Uh, To approve something is to make a determination about something. But the idea of this term is the process that leads to and includes the decision. It really means to put something to the test, to examine it with the intent to determine what the outcome should be and then make that decision. For something to be approved, it must first be analyzed and examined to determine its quality. With respect to prophecy, the same word is used in 1 Thessalonians 5.21 where it says, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. Though prophecy is no longer an active gift in the life of the church today, we can apply the same principle to teaching. Don't just believe everything you hear because someone claims it says it in the Bible. You have to analyze it. You have to examine it. You have to test it. Does the Bible really say that? And then you either embrace it if it does or reject it if it doesn't. That's what it means to approve here. A maturing love that is growing in knowledge and discernment will exercise that discernment discernment by testing and making distinctions. Now, look again at what a maturing and discerning love looks for. What kind of distinction is it trying to make? He says, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. The things that are excellent, which means the things that are superior, the things that are more valuable. Jesus uses this term in Matthew chapter 10 when he says, so don't fear you are more valuable than the sparrows. That's discerning love right there. A discerning love is a love that looks at a situation, evaluates the dynamics involved, and considers what is the best choice I can make in this moment. What response would most glorify God? What response would most benefit and bless those in this situation? What actions can I take to minister to others? A discerning love recognizes that people are more important than possessions. Relationships are more important than rights. And serving is more important than status. There are all kinds of distinctions that a discerning love makes, but we need to, we need to be growing in love and discernment and exercising love in that way. Paul prays for a maturing love that is continually growing in knowledge and discernment. He also prays for a discerning love that exercises that knowledge and discernment, making choices in life that Uh, glorify God and minister to others. And third, he prays for a sanctifying love, a sanctifying love. And so we must pursue a sanctifying love. Look again at verse 10 in the second half. He says, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. As we said last week, sanctification is the work of God by which Through His Spirit, He conforms us to the character of Christ. The natural result of living out God's kind of love is we become a people who look like Christ. That's what we see here. A maturing love that grows in knowledge and discernment is a love that is cultivating the the mind of Christ 
A discerning love that chooses words and actions on the basis of God's glory and the good of of others is a love that reflects the priorities of Christ. And the result of these things is that the person is characterized that the person characterized by this kind of love is sincere and blameless, filled with the righteousness of Christ. Sincerity here is the idea of purity, of being without mixture, choosing the good out of a good motive. Unlike those preaching Christ who had ulterior motives, as we'll see next week, when we are motivated by love and choosing the things that please God and bless others, our actions are sincere. They are pure. Jesus, of course, was sincere in all that he did. He never had mixed motives. He never uh, did things in an underhanded way. He extended grace to sinners without approving of their sin. He spoke the truth to the Pharisees without malice in his heart. He walked by the Spirit and submitted himself to the will of the Father without complaint or questioning, even even though it brought great suffering into his life. He never did anything begrudgingly. He never said anything but thought something else. He was never selfish or self-seeking or manipulative or deceptive. His, His thoughts, his words, and his actions were pure. They were sincere. That's the aim that we should pursue. And then the idea of blameless here is actually the idea of not giving an offense. Uh, not being a stumbling block to others. The same term is used in 1 Corinthians 10.32 where it says, Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. And the context there refers to the constant debate that was happening in the early church of whether or not Christians should eat meat sacrificed to idols. And, And Paul says, whatever you do, whether you believe it's a sin or whether you don't, whatever you do, follow the principle of not giving an offense. Don't be a stumbling block to others. Remember, love is not self-seeking. It's seeking the benefit of others. So not only should a maturing and discerning love be, be sanctifying in that we increasingly think, speak, and act in ways that are sincere and pure, but this kind of love also will not cause offense to others. Won't cause offense to others. Now, we have to clarify something as soon as we say that because we know that just because we're not causing an offense doesn't mean that others won't take offense, right? As Jesus lived his pure and blameless life, some people were offended by him. The Pharisees were offended that he didn't follow their man-made laws. They were offended that his teaching implicated them as having a false religion. They would take offense whenever Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath right in front of them. So how are we to determine if we're seeking to act in love and someone gets offended, how are we to to determine if we did something wrong? Was the offense something that I did? Is that my fault or is it something else? And here's the primary test. Did you do something to offend them personally or did you speak and live according to the truth and thus offend their sense of what is right? You see, Jesus never offended anyone or attacked them as persons. What Jesus did is he lived in such a way that his entire life was an affront to the religious system of Judaism, what it had become, and how it had overgrown and obscured the faithfulness to the law of Moses. 
the Word of God, our Old Testament, had become like a, a written monument that had been overgrown with vines and weeds so that it could no longer be read. And when Jesus tried to clear away the weeds so that the people could read the text, they got mad at him, the religious leaders did, because they liked the weeds and they liked the vines more than the Scripture. In short, Jesus' teaching and actions offended their false religious convictions. In the same way, sometimes our actions of love will result in offense being taken because someone has personal beliefs that can't allow them to receive biblical love. The proclamation of the gospel is one such example. The gospel itself, Scripture says, is an affront to sinners because it tells them they stand guilty before a holy God who is just and will not allow their sin to go unpunished. 2 Corinthians 2.16 says the gospel is an aroma of death to those who are perishing. And even though the bad news is far outweighed by the good news of the forgiveness that's available in Christ, unless the Lord opens the heart and mind of a sinner to, to hear that truth and understand, the unbeliever will be so offended by that first statement that they will be unwilling to listen to the rest of the message. And so we should be growing in our own lives. We should be aiming to, to speak the truth and to live in, in such a way that we ourselves are not adding a stumbling block to the truth. Knowing that sometimes God's love will be offensive to sinners. And we all need to grow in this because we know how easy it is for us to add offense. I mean, the very first article I read, Randomly Chosen, about the decision on Friday, had one quote by one Christian. And that quote was an expression of judgment and condemnation for those who are seeking an abortion. That is not a Christian response. Professing Christians have added to the offense of the gospel in so many ways in recent decades. Instead of proclaiming a gospel of redemption that is available through Christ, the signs you see at marches often proclaim a message of condemnation. Those who show up to protest pride parades and other celebrations of our ungodly culture create offense when they bring judgment rather than grace. Whether we're interacting with believers or unbelievers, we should be growing such that we do not detract from biblical love but rather allow God's love to flow through us and overflow onto others without us getting in the way. Now, how does this sanctification happen? How do we actually grow in these ways? Well, verse 11 tells us. It says, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. In other words, we grow in sincerity and blamelessness as we are filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. This is why Paul is praying these things and not necessarily, at least in this moment, commanding these things. This is something that God does in us. What we see here is that sanctification is, again, the work of God through His Holy Spirit who forms Christ in us. Paul doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here, but it is the Holy Spirit who produces the fruit of the righteousness of Christ in our lives. Whenever you see the word fruit, especially in the context of righteousness in the New Testament, you should have that knee-jerk reaction to think about the fruit of the Spirit. 
And whenever you do think of the fruit of the Spirit, you should you would do well to remember that the fruit of the Spirit is found in Galatians 5. Now, if you're there in Philippians, just turn back just a few pages to the left to look at Galatians 5. Where Paul says in 5 verse 22 and 23, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against things Such things, there is no law. By using the word fruit, we learn that these are not things that we tack onto our lives, but rather things that grow within us, inside of us, as the Spirit does His work. But that doesn't mean that we are passive in the process. In fact, look at verse 24. Now, those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Those who've been made alive by the Spirit are those who have been crucified with Christ. We are now dead to sin in that we are no longer bound to it. We are no longer enslaved to our passions and desires. We now have the ability, because we are alive by the Spirit, to say no to sin. And rather to submit ourselves to the will of God. And so we are to walk by the Spirit. We are to submit to what the Spirit says in His Word. In fact, the verb to walk by the Spirit means to follow the Spirit. Or to abide by the Spirit. And how do we do that? We, we take the Word of God and with the enablement of the Spirit, we center our lives around it and conform ourselves to it. Going back to Philippians 1, we are filled with the fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ, meaning as we by faith walk in love, the Spirit produces the character of Christ in us. God's kind of love is is not passive. It's not a, a feeling or a live and let live attitude. God's kind of love is a commitment to use your resources, your time, and your energy for the good of others, regardless of whether they deserve it. That kind of love is sustained as we grow in knowledge and discernment, and it's properly exercised as we analyze situations and consider and choose responses that reflect God's priorities. And when we're aiming to live that way, by faith, empowered by the Holy Spirit, the result is sanctification. We will grow in sincerity and blamelessness until the day of Christ. And we will experience the growth of the fruit of righteousness, which is produced by the Holy Spirit as he conforms us to the image of Christ. Well, as we come to the end of the passage, Paul directs us to the ultimate purpose of this ever-increasing, maturing, discerning, and sanctifying love. He says there at the end of verse 11, to the glory and praise of God. When we love the way God loves, we're loving Him in that we're dying to ourselves and affirming that His love is the greatest and worthy of emulation. We're saying that all other forms of love are at best lesser and incomparable to His love. Romans 8.29 says that as we are conformed to the image of Christ, We prove him to be preeminent, meaning he is the the greatest of all worth emulating. 
In the same way, growing in our practice of God's kind of love shows God's love to be preeminent. In doing so, we we celebrate His love and exalt His character. Another way that we glorify God and praise Him is by putting His love on display for others to see. We glorify God by reflecting His love back to Him and also by reflecting His love back to others. We show fellow believers and the world what God is like. They get a a living and breathing example of what kind of God we worship and we serve. We don't worship a, a God who is far away. We don't worship a God who is apathetic toward his creation. We don't worship a God who is dispassionate about the plight of sinners. No, we worship a God who is compelled by virtue of his nature to move heaven and earth at great cost to himself to save his enemies. He is greater than all the gods created by mankind. And we have the joy and the privilege of extending that love to one another and to the world. This is the kind of love that enables us to move toward one another in times of trouble. Loving God and loving others truly is all that we need because when we are loving with God's kind of love, everything else falls into place. Now, I've said that we are to pursue a maturing love and we are to pursue a discerning love and to pursue a sanctifying love, but the reality is we can't do this on our own. We desperately need God's help and God's power to grow in this kind of love and to live it out. So let's join Paul in praying for these things in our lives. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to this text, we are reminded of the magnificence of your love. There is no other love like yours. You have done what we would not even begin to imagine had you not already done it. But now having seen it, Having done it, having experienced it in our own lives, God, we are so wanting to to imitate you in that kind of love. But even with that desire, we confess how difficult it is to do that. How we are so hindered by our own sin and desires and self-orientation. So we collectively ask that you would work this kind of love in us. That you would take the love the the good, godly love that we already have and that you would abound it more and more in our lives. And that as a people, that we would be known as those who love the way that you love. So that you would receive all of the glory and all of the praise. In Christ's name, amen.